This morning, we're going to continue a, a, a new ser- series that we started last week on stewardship. This idea that God has entrusted you with a life and that he has given us things that we steward, that we, they're not really ours, they belong to the Lord. And, and we are to um, invest them as he would in, have us invest them. So we're going to look at... Well, it's kind of a mix this morning. It's kind of this idea that we steward our bodies, our physical bodies, but we also steward this body of Christ. There's a lot in this sermon today. I'm just going to go ahead and let you know. Probably one of those ones where there's too much. So let's pray that the Lord will, like, lead you to exactly the part that you need to hear today. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you that you help us that you guide us, that your spirit is inside every believer, guiding us to truth. Lord, we ask that you would help us today, that you would help us know what you, the truths that you have for us, that would help us in that walk, that would help us know you better. Thank you for your promises. Thank you for your son, Jesus. We pray all of these things in his name. Amen. Well, as I said, today we're looking at this idea of stewardship of the body. Uh, Stewardship of the body. Now, we kind of realize that we ought to steward our physical bodies. And at first I thought, well, this would be a very good sermon for us, you know, talking about sleep and talking about exercise and talking about eating right um, and even how we work and spend our time. That would be a very good sermon for us. Okay, maybe that would just be a very good sermon for me, (laughs) because I think I'm the one that's like, eating right. Does that mean nachos and Coke? (laughs) Probably not. Exercise, does that mean the, um, I do walk up the stairs, I do sit up every morning out of bed. Um, That's one, one sit up. Um, Maybe stewardship of our bodies, I need to pay a little bit more attention to to myself. But really when we look at this passage, Paul talks about a God-honoring stewardship of our bodies that includes not only how we treat um, our own physical body, but really how that body is in relationship with one another, this body of Christ, this idea that your own physical body, your own, like, here it is, here's mine, um, I have freedom in Christ in how I'm going to live. I am forgiven. Um, Paul's going to talk a lot about the choices that we make. But he also talks about you are part of a body of believers. You are part of this family of God. And that means we have freedom in how we live with one another. But that freedom really should be um, seen as something that gives us the opportunity to truly live for Christ. Now, last time we learned that the Corinthian church was this church that was at a crossroads um, that had a diverse set of peoples from all over the Roman Empire. It was a place where they celebrated those those Ithmian games. Every two years, they were having the world championships in athletics right there in Corinth. We learned that there was a variety of lifestyles and that they questioned a lot how they were supposed to respond to culture. In in fact, this letter Paul is sending, 1 Corinthians, he is sending back to Corinth to explain to them some answers to very specific questions that they had about how they were to live in that culture. And some Bible scholars even think that at this point, these younger Christians, they've been Christians for a few years now, began to disagree with the Apostle Paul. And he's trying to make a case for why they need to live a certain way. They need to live in a freedom that glorifies God. So let's take a look this morning. It's going to surprise you, but look at this passage in 1 Corinthians chapter 5. Beginning with verse 1, it says, it's actually being reported to me. 
So this wasn't one of their questions, but <laughs> the people who brought the letter to Paul said, uh, this is what's going on, Paul. You need to know what's happening out there. It's actually reported there is sexual immorality among you of the kind that even the pagans, even the non-believers, even the ones who don't claim to know God, even the pagans wouldn't even tolerate this. A man is sleeping with his father's wife. Now, immediately you're thinking, well, his father's wife, doesn't that mean his mother? Maybe a stepmother, probably a stepmother. Um, so, um, wow. Even the pagans, every, the non-Christian world's like, gosh, you don't even want to know what's going on there. Now, that's shocking in and of itself, but look at the next verse. And you are proud. And you're proud. Shouldn't you rather have gone into mourning and have put out the fellowship of a man who has been doing this? That jumps out to me. Why is Paul saying, and you are proud? You are actually like, you know, well, there's a guy, yeah, he's kind of doing some pretty scandalous things over there, but, it, you know, we're, we're, we're pretty okay with it. We're, we're a progressive community. We're, we're kind of an enlightened group. What in the world could this be? Why could they be proud of this kind of sexual immorality? What was going on? Well, look at Paul's answer later in chapter 6. He's still discussing their lifestyle. He's still discussing who they are. And I think it gives clues to why they were able to say, well, we're sort of proud of that behavior. In verse 12 of chapter 6, it says, I have the right to do anything, you say, but not everything is beneficial. I have the right to do anything, but I will not be mastered by anything. They continue to say phrases like this in verse 13, food is for the stomach and the stomach for food. It's for food, and God will destroy them both. He says, but the body is not meant for sexual immorality. However, for the Lord and the Lord for the body. What are we seeing in those kinds of expressions? I have the right to do anything. Isn't the body made for food and food for the body or the food for, or the stomach is made for food so my body is made for physical contact, sexual immorality, these kinds of things. He was saying that the people were claiming that, that, that that's what we're designed for, Paul. My brain's supposed to be for learning. My body's for, well, you know, physical activity, including sex. My stomach is made for food. It's time to eat. They were expressing this idea that that's how we're designed. That's what we're all for. They began to give out this idea that we as Christians who have been forgiven, we kind of have sort of a blank check. We are sort of allowed to live free. There is a question among believers and amongst these Corinthian believers about what real freedom in Christ is all about. Is it about just living any way you want to? Is it trying to live in accordance with what you think is your base created sort of nature? How are you supposed to go? What were they supposed to do? I think they were sitting here saying, hey, Paul, we know that some people have some hang-ups, but we, oh, we're the enlightened ones. We're the ones who realize that we are free to do anything because we have this forgiveness in Christ. We are free to express ourselves. We are for fr free to give into our full range of our natures. We are free. Well, look at what it says in Galatians chapter 5. Paul addresses this freedom, and he says, It is for freedom that Christ has set us free. This is something that Paul preached a lot. It is for freedom that Christ has set us free. So stand firm then, and don't let yourselves be burdened again with the yoke of slavery. 
In Galatians chapter 5, he's specifically talking about those who had followed behind him. And after Paul proclaimed, you can have forgiveness in Jesus. You can have your sins washed away. Jesus has given us the Holy Spirit and a new life. There were other teachers that came behind him and said, well, that's good, but you also need to follow all the Jewish rules, all the Jewish customs, all the Jewish belief systems. They wanted to yoke them again with a slavery that was a slavery to legalism. It's interesting, though he goes on to say this, just so the Galatians didn't make this mistake, he says this in the very next verse, or in verse 13, you brothers and sisters were called to be free, but don't use your freedom to indulge the flesh. Don't use your freedom to indulge the flesh. Rather, serve one another humbly out of love. Don't make this mistake that though you are forgiven, though your righteousness before God is not based on your works, but based on what Christ has done on the cross, though you are free to to, to act um, and free to live, you are free in, in this forgiveness There are still constraints. There are still, it's not freedom to just indulge those those sinful, wicked desires. It's not freedom to just do anything you want. It's freedom to serve one another humbly in love. You can see this in that verse 13. Food for the stomach and the stomach for food. Paul's saying, no, 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 no. Don't look at it that way. Don't see, well, that's how my body is designed. That's what I'm for. He's like, no, the body is for the Lord and the Lord for the body. You are called to something different in this freedom. It is not for for base, uh, uh, sinful, wicked desires. It is for a different kind of freedom. It is for a freedom to live for God, a freedom to live for each other. It's a freedom to steward what God has given you. That is your physical body and those relationships you have in the church. So today, I'm so glad we're not having that kind of stuff going on in this church, but we are going to talk about something I think very good, very true for us. How do we steward this godly freedom, this freedom that God has given us? How do we make the right kind of choices that are honoring to him? So I'm going to give us three big points that I think come out of these chapters that are guidance for godly freedom, guidance for how we are supposed to live. The first one is this. Number one, be careful what you bring into the house. What? Um, the picture there says it all, right? Does anybody, um, who has the new carpet, right? Now, Jen, Jen, they're like, oh, do not come into my house with those muddy shoes. We just laid that carpet, and all of a sudden you can see someone tracking in the muddy shoes, or heaven forbid, they stepped in something that some dog left somewhere, and they're tracking it into your house, and sure enough, to ground it into that carpet, and mmm. Be careful what you bring into the house. Be careful. I mean, you're the steward. It's your house, and you want to take care of it. So see your life and the people of God as that holy people that you want to be careful what you bring in. Look at what he says back in chapter 5 of 1 Corinthians. You're boasting your pride in the sexual immorality. He says, that is not good. Don't you know that a little yeast leavens the whole batch of dough? Get rid of the old yeast so that you may be a new unleavened batch as you really are. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Now, if you may be reading that going, huh? <laughs> wait, wait, what? 
I like the example of the muddy shoes. That made sense to me. What, what is this unleavened bread? What, okay, bakers in the room, you all know what this is all about, right? You know that the leaven is what makes the bread rise and makes it not a cracker, right? If you don't put any leaven in it, it's just going to be flat. It's just going to be a cracker. It's going to be that kind of thing. But he says something specific. For Christ, our Passover lamb has already been sacrificed. That's a clue. Something else is going on here. He's talking very much about the Passover where God brought the Israelites out of Egypt. It says that they had to pack up so quickly that they just threw whatever they had into, into, on their backs, threw it on a camel, threw it on a donkey, and out the door they went. That included bread that had not been leavened. So on their first days that they were out, they ate unleavened bread. And when they celebrate year after year a feast day to remember God's salvation, to remember how God brought them out, they were always commanded to use unleavened bread or matzah. And, and you can still buy the matzah. You can still buy it. It's basically a nice little tasteless cracker. It just, I mean, it's kind of like a saltine without the salt. I mean, it, 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 it's just a little cracker, but it's to remind themselves that, hey, we left in haste and God provided but it became something else. It became a symbol of purity. It became a symbol of purity. For look, in Exodus, when they were commanded to do this feast, look at what God says. He says, for seven days, you are to eat bread made without yeast. And on the first day, don't miss this, remove all of the yeast from your houses. Get it all out of there. Don't leave it in the refrigerator. Get it out. And to this day, um, observant Jews will take literally all the yeast and make sure it's out of the house and sweep and make sure all of the cabinets are clean. Make sure that it is nowhere in the house. Because it says, for whoever eats anything with yeast in it from the first day until the seventh, listen to this, must be cut off from the people of God from Israel. Got to be honest, that sounds a little harsh. I mean, just because there was a little leaven and it just got a little bit in there, maybe, and maybe it's not even near the bread. What's going on? It became a symbol of purity, a symbol that if you've got a little leaven, and this is where <clears throat> me, the non-baker, apparently a little leaven goes a long way. Apparently, it, can, it works its way through the whole dough. Apparently, Paul is saying that it, it, a little bit of impurity can just infect everything. And so the commandment is, so cut them off, kick them out, that they, they, they can't be a part, that they're ignoring God's commands, they're allowing this impurity. That seems like such a small rule to have to follow. Well, that gives us a clue that it's probably not about the small thing, but about a deeper spiritual problem. If there's a little bit of leaven, if there's a little bit of this immorality, if there's a little bit of, of, of stuff that, that, that begins to turn people's hearts away from God, look what was happening in the church. The, 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 this sexual immorality that one man was sleeping with his, his, his mother-in-law, that, that all of a sudden the church is like, well, yeah, we're kind of enlightened here. That has a way of destroying the church. It has a way of infecting the children. It has a way of teaching the, the teenagers a wrong way to go. It has a way of, of encouraging encouraging other types of, of unfaithfulness to God. It has a way of destroying the congregation. And so it says, no, kick them out. There's a term that's used in, in, in theology, in Christian circles, that is not always real popular, but it's called church discipline. Church discipline. 
What in the world is church discipline? Well, it comes from this passage. Did you see 1 Corinthians 5? Did you see what Paul said? And you're proud of this immorality? Shouldn't you rather have gone into mourning and have put out of the fellowship the man who is doing this? What? Kick him out of the church? What? That just doesn't seem very right. But Paul was exactly saying that there's a time where if someone is unrepentant, if someone is not willing to, to, to yield themselves to Jesus, and it is this obvious sin that is infecting the whole body, oh my goodness, maybe you're supposed to put them out of the fellowship. Now, let's explore that for just a second, because boy, that's a tricky, tricky wicket. That, that is a problematic little situation. Oh boy. First of all, we have to realize that Paul is not talking about how Christians interact with the world. Like, well, that person's sinning, so I'm not going to have anything to do with them. Church discipline has nothing to do with unbelievers. Because look, look what he's, he goes on to explain that in 1 Corinthians 5. He says, I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexual immoral, sexually immoral people, not meaning the people of this world who are immoral or greedy or swindlers or idolaters. In that case, you would have to leave the world altogether. He's not saying that you're supposed to somehow shame or make others feel bad about their choice. I mean, we're not supposed to go around as some kind of morality police uh, um, condemning everybody that we see and, and accusing them in our workplaces or in our families. Or, uh, no, if they're not a believer, he's saying, I'm not meaning that. We're supposed to live righteously. We're supposed to live holy. But these are, this is for believers, not meaning those who are of this world. He says in verse 11, but now I am writing to you that you must not associate with anyone who claims to be a brother or a sister, but is sexually immoral, or greedy, or an idolater, or a slanderer, or a drunkard, or a swindler. Don't even eat with such people. Oh boy. Everybody oh boy in this one? This is tricky, right? What does this mean for us? All right. <clears throat> Are we going to form a morality police? That's what we need to do. The patrol. We'll have little badges. We'll go around and make sure everybody. Okay, it's not working out in Iran right now. I mean, that kind of stuff is not good. That's a legalism. That is, that is not what we are called to do. What is this supposed to be about? Well, Paul's really clear. When he talks to Timothy and says, hey, I'm leaving you in Ephesus to teach people not to, to teach false doctrines and to correct people's lifestyles, he says the goal of this is love. Well, how could any kind of church of discipline be loving? Well, first, we already saw it. It protects the body. It protects the body of believers. Church discipline is loving because it protects. How does it work? Well, look. Look what it says in verse 6. Don't you know that a little yeast works its way through the whole dough? You guys have it figured out. It, 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 it has a way of infecting us. It has a way of, of turning our hearts away from the Lord. It has a way of discouraging, disrupting even our, our young people. Okay. I remember seeing my friend <laughs> um, with his wife and their kids, and I don't remember what it was. Were we trying to find a parking place? Was Something was wrong at the, happened at the table. We knocked over a drink or something while we were there together having dinner, um, and all of a sudden a little word slipped out. And his wife was like, you know, careful, right, right? You, you know what I'm talking about, right? It, it, it's the little children that hear the, the, those little words. She was like, Bill, 
the kids are right there. Mickey's smiling. She remembered. Yeah, the kids are right there. It was that little word that all of a sudden then the children heard, right? Because which word do they hear? <laughs> you know, right? There's a, there's a funny scene in a movie where the man says a whole lot of things, and then he says one little cuss word, and then the little girl goes, <laughs> she repeats it. Right? She's like, that's the word you heard? That's the one you learned? Of course it was. A little yeast has a way of working its, the way through its whole, the, the, the whole dough. Um, we, we see how it can infect wheat. So we're always trying to be careful to be a good model. We even sing the song. Does anybody remember this one? Be careful little eyes what you see. You know, be careful little ears what you hear. You know. We're trying to keep our children protected. And the body of believers we are trying to set an example. I set an example like, I want to be, and Don and I were talking earlier, I want to be in the house of the Lord because it's modeling that for my children and my grandchildren. I want to be with God's people. I want to devote myself to what is right and what is good. Acknowledging that when I have the small things that might seem small, and even if I have the freedom to do it, some of those might be being bad models for our kids and our grandkids. How do we keep um, protecting the body? Church discipline is one of those. Number two, it emulates God's love. What? Yeah, the discipline actually emulates God's love. Look what it says in Hebrews chapter 12. Our fathers, our parents, disciplined us for a little while as they thought best. But God actually disciplines us for our good in order that we might share in his holiness. The Lord is good, and he disciplines us. Just like you as good parents, those of you who have, have been parents, you've disciplined your children for their good. I received some from my parents, obviously. Uh, they helped me be <coughs> as good as I am today. Okay, maybe it didn't work as well as they had intended. But, you know, they tried their best. And we try our best to make sure that we are that example for our children. Um, so what does this mean for us? If we're not gathering the morality police, if we're not gathering a squad of deacons or elders to go around and make sure that nobody's sinning every week, what does it mean? Well, I think for one, it means that we are looking at our own lives first. Are we being that good example? Are we living according to God's word on a daily basis? Are we making sure we're not the ones tracking the bad stuff into the house? But number two, I think it starts with godly conversations. Sometimes confrontational conversations. Sometimes where we say in love, hey brother, I love you, I care about you, but I, 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 this is what I've seen going on in your life and I, I just wanted to ask you about it. What's going on? Do you think this is glorifying to the Lord? Now what we're not talking about is if you see me driving a little faster down York than, than 35 miles an hour, that doesn't mean you need to pull me over and say, hey Mike, you know, it's only supposed to be 35, you're not being a good example. But if you know there's some kind of unrepentant sin, if you know there's places where someone is just flaunting what God is saying, I think the first step is do what Jesus said. Let, let's pull them aside individually to talk about it. Is this something that God has for you? Is this what is pleasing to him? Let's start there. Let's start in prayer. And then if the person really is unrepentant, then maybe it is time to bring someone else involved, someone else, another leader from the church, to, to have those private conversations to say, hey, this may not be what God has for you. Let's begin there as a church, because I think if we are faithful to becoming a disciple-making church, as God has called us to be, then it means that we're probably going to have to have some tough conversations with one another. We all have blind spots. 
We all have places we need to grow. And if there is gross immorality, like way out of bounds, we need to address it as a congregation. Number two, how do we deal with our freedom? I think it also is be careful where you go. Be careful where you go. Not only what you're bringing to the house, but where you go. Look what Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 6. He says, don't you know that your bodies are members of Christ himself? Shall I take the members of Christ and unite them with a prostitute? Never. Verse 18, so flee sexual immorality. All other sins a person commits are outside the body, but whoever sins sexually sins against his own body. There is something unique in the sexual sins. There is something unique in, in our sins that are against our own body because we are taking Jesus with us to a place where we ought not to. Look at how he says it in verse 19. Don't you know, don't you know that your bodies are actually the temples of the Holy Spirit um, who is in you, whom you've received from God? You are not your own. You were bought with a price. Therefore, honor God with your bodies. We need to be careful where we go. There's an old youth skit. I don't know if you've seen it, but I remember doing this at the youth group. They, they, they would have a, a young person um, sitting there, and he's about to spend time with God. He's got his Bible out. He's pretending to, 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 to see God. And all of a sudden, <clears throat> Jesus is sitting right there with him, and he's, oh, Jesus, I'm looking forward to spending time with you. And he gets a phone call. And it's a friend that says, hey, you want to come to this party? And he's like, well, I kind of do want to go to this party. He puts down his Bible, and he's like, I really want to go. And Jesus kind of stands up to go with him. And he's like, oh, no, 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 Jesus, this isn't your kind of party. <laughs> Jesus, this isn't your kind of place. This isn't your kind of thing. And he starts walking out the door, and Jesus keeps following him. He says, no, Jesus, you can't go because you're not going to like the stuff that's going on there. And Jesus keeps trying to go with him. And, and the, 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 the person of the skit keeps trying to explain to Jesus, this is not for you. This is not your place. You don't want to be there. This is just going to be my thing for a little bit. But Jesus keeps wanting to go with him. And so the person has to sort of nail him to the wall to leave Jesus there. The symbolism is clear, putting him on the cross, right? Uh, it's like we don't want to take Jesus. Look, you wouldn't even do this for your best friends. You wouldn't even do this for property you like. I got to be honest, if I, if I had a road that looks like this road, <clears throat> I wouldn't take my, my nice looking car on it. It doesn't have four wheel drive. I'm not going there. Even if it had four-wheel drive, I'm not sure I'm going there. I, I'm definitely not taking my wife there because if, if we get stuck and she has to get out in the mud, let me tell you, I'm not going to be able to put that away for quite a while. Let's not take Jesus. Let's not take Jesus where we don't, shouldn't be taking Jesus. It, it has to do with what we're, where we are at all times, what entertainment we're involved in, where we are with our friends, what activity we're doing. Let's be careful where we go. We have a stewardship of this body. It's not for us. It belongs to the Lord. It's a temple that is his temple. And finally today, I want to say this. Be careful who you're serving. Wait a second. What? That's the craziest thing I've ever heard. Pastor Mike, be careful who you're serving. We're supposed to serve everybody. Jesus didn't even serve Judas when he washed Judas's feet. What do you mean be careful who you're serving? Well, look at what Paul says. So then about food sacrificed to idols, we know that an idol is nothing in the world and that there's no God but one. Wait, what? This was one of their questions. This was one of the questions that the Corinthians had. What they were asking was this. 
Hey, Paul, we know there's no demons. We know, or there's no, there's no real gods. Zeus and Apollo, those aren't real gods. But here's what's happening. My uncle's got a birthday party, and everybody's going, and he's having it up at Zeus's temple, and they're offering a sacrifice, and the, some of the uh, meat gets burned up, some of it gets left out for the god, and some of it gets served to the rest of us. It's kind of like a giant family barbecue. I can go to that, right? I'm not worshiping Zeus. I, I mean, I, I can go to this, right? This would be okay. So it's food that is sacrificed to idols. Now, some also talk about some of the meat that was left to the God, the God actually doesn't come and eat it, and they would sell it in the marketplace later. He does address that, and Paul says it's okay to do that. But later in chapter 10, he strictly forbids going and actually participating in these ceremonies, even if you know they're not really worshiping anything. There's no Zeus up there. There's no Apollo. And they Corinthians begin to pride themselves on their freedom and say, look, we know there's no God but one. We can go eat uh, at, at these temples. Look what he says in verse 77. But not everyone possesses this knowledge. Some people who are so accustomed to idols think that when they eat this sacrificial food, it, it, it's like having been sacrificed to a God, actually been in, in worship. And since their conscience is weak, it's defiled. So you might be good. You know there's no Zeus. You know there's no Apollo. But somebody else, some other Christian, might not know. They might not realize. And so he says in verse 9, Be careful then that you don't exercise your rights that become a stumbling block for somebody else. Even if this might be okay for you, if it's not okay for them, you could hurt their conscience. You could hurt their faith. You could hurt, they, they, they've become weak. They, you might become that stumbling block for them. It's like inviting a friend who you know is an alcoholic to go to the bar with you. Don't do it. Don't serve wine at the dinner if you know they have struggle with alcoholism. You would never do such a thing. In your spiritual life, be careful what you do because it might be corrupting others. Verse 10, for if someone with a weak conscience sees you with all of your knowledge eating in an idol's temple, won't that person be emboldened to eat what is sacrificed? They're seeing you do it, even though you're good with it, you think it's okay, you don't think it's a problem, but it might become a stumbling block for them. It might embolden them to go back to the worship of these other idols, these false gods. Verse 11, so the weak brother or sister for whom Christ died is destroyed by your knowledge. When you sin against them, notice that, when you sin against them, you are actually put, you know, putting them down. I mean, when you sin against them, you wound their weak conscience. You're also sinning against Christ. Paul goes to the extreme and says, therefore, if what I eat causes my brother or sister to fall into sin, I'm never eating meat again, just to make sure, so that I will call, not cause any of them to fall. And he didn't even have the option for these beyond burger business. He, he didn't even have the option for these fake burgers made out of like broccoli or whatever they are. I don't know, I mean, I'm sticking with meat if I can. But if it's gonna cause somebody to fall, if it's gonna hurt somebody, then hey, I need to be careful, I need to be wise, I need to even give up what's my right. It's my right. But you give it up for your brother, for your sister. So who are you serving? It can't be yourself, it needs to be the body of Christ. Who are you serving? 
not just the family believers, but it also can be the people of the lost world. The Apostle Paul, or Jesus says, for I have not, for the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. Look in 1 Corinthians 9. He says, though I am free, I belong to no one. I have made myself a slave to everyone, to win as many people as possible. To the weak I became like the weak. I have become all things to all people, so that by all means I might save some. Valley Baptist Church, you are free. You are free. You're free from the penalty of sin. Jesus died for you. Jesus rose again to give you new life. You are free. So use your freedom not for the flesh. Don't take Jesus places that he wouldn't want you to go. Don't, don't hurt the body of believers by tempting them to, to wrong things. You are free, so don't use your freedom to indulge the flesh. Use your freedom to glorify Christ. Use your freedom to build up the body of believers. Use your freedom to help reach others who don't know and have never experienced this new life tough message for us. But I think it's what we deal with every single day. Are we stewarding our lives? Are the choices we make in the time we've been giving to us and who we're living with at home and how we're serving those around us, are we stewarding the life that God has given us with wisdom? Today, we want to make an invitation. We want to invite you, if you do not know Jesus Christ as your Savior, if you're like, I, I, I don't know, but I want to be part of those people. I want to be a part of this gift that God has given where he has taken away our sins. I, I, I need this. This is your moment. Say yes to Jesus. Just right where you are, forgive me, Jesus. Come into my life. If you are a follower of Jesus, but you're not part of a body, maybe today's your day that says, no, we're, we're joining here. This is the church we want to be a part of. This is the family of believers I, I, I want to belong to. I want to go on this journey helping one another live in freedom that Christ has died for. Aaron and the music team is going to come and lead us in a song. It's a song of decision. You say to the Lord what you need to say to him. You make the decision you need to make. And if you need to do something publicly, if you need to talk to me, I'll be here at the front. Uh, you come. You respond as God is calling you. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for the freedom that we have in your Son. Help us live in a way, not as those who insist on their rights, but as those who are bought with a price, give ourselves fully to you, our Savior and King. We pray in the name of Jesus, our Lord. Amen.